Section 14 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4. The Counter-Reformation at its Height, Part 2. It was, however, with Sixtus V, Montalto, that, as the very legends clustering round the history of his origin and election seem to testify, the full vigor and self-reliance of the papal government once more renewed themselves. Already in the earliest years of his manhood, when known throughout Italy as an eloquent and fearless popular preacher, he became one of the most active laborers in the cause of the Catholic Reformation and excited the interest of the future popes Paul IV and Pius V, as well as of Loyola and of Philip of Neri. The severity with which he afterwards reformed the convents of his brother Franciscans at Siena, Naples, and Venice further raised his reputation at Rome. But at Venice, where he for a time acted as inquisitor, the seigneury in the end demanded and obtained his recall. He was afterwards appointed vicar-general of his order at Rome, and lost no opportunity of continuing his strife against the backward and the lukewarm. His journey to Spain as theologian to Cardinal Buoncompagni, afterwards Pope Gregory XIII, on his mission for the settlement of Carranza's case, led to disputes which long left their sting. When Montalto, whom Pius V had raised to the cardinalate, came forth from the retirement into which he had withdrawn under Gregory's pontificate, the change in him was assuredly due to no previous dissimulation. Indeed, of hypocrisy there was no trace in his brusque and coarse nature, for such it certainly remained, notwithstanding his delight in books and the arts, especially architecture, which under him added so largely to the grandeur as well as to the orthodoxy of the aspect of Rome. His earliest success was the complete restoration of order in the papal states as against the banditti and their protectors. His financial arrangements, in conjunction with the frugality of his expenditure, secured to his government a large annual surplus. His bull, Immensa Aeterna Dei, reorganized the whole pontifical system of government by a careful distribution of its functions among fifteen congregations or committees of cardinals, of which the first was the Holy Office, charged with the control of all matters of faith and presided over by the Pope in person. Another bull, postquam veris ile, fixed the number of cardinals at seventy. Though on the whole his creations were confined to men of eminent piety and reforming opinions, he was unable to escape altogether the anukke, Greek, of the temporal power, and his nephew, the youthful Cardinal Montalto, came to be his chief minister for foreign affairs, and indeed for matters of state in general. For the rest, no sovereign was ever more his own master. He endeavored to maintain an active communication with the bishops without constantly interfering with their diocesan authority, and he was not afraid of modifying on occasion even the privileges of the Inquisition. As for the Jesuits, he treated them coolly, and placed on the index a book of their redoubtable controversialist, Bellarmine. Sixtus V frequently declared his desire for a great crusade against the Turk, but he can hardly be supposed to have intended the treasures hoarded by him to be exhausted by this object. 
His first overtures were inevitably made to Philip II, whom, however, he found to be intent upon very different aims. He could not gainsay the logical necessity of a Spanish invasion of England, though he would have preferred, had it been possible, the conversion of Queen Elizabeth, between whom and himself there prevailed an odd kind of mutual regard. He promised a large annual subsidy to Philip, but the failure of the Armada materially diminished his respect for the king, whom, together with his ambassador, Olivares, he heartily disliked, and who had offended him by his claim to regulate ecclesiastical titles in Spain. At the same time, Sixtus V never thought either of making war upon Philip or of attempting, like Paul IV, to wrest Naples from his hands. His foes were the foes of the church, such as Geneva, which he had at first encouraged Charles Emmanuel of Savoy to attack, and his friends were her friends, such as King Stephen Bathory of Poland, 1575-86, on whose death, followed by the accession of the Swedish Sigismund, he warmly interested himself in the maintenance of Catholicism in Poland at its re-establishment in Sweden. But nowhere had the political energy of Sixtus V so difficult a field of action as in France, which he was anxious both to preserve to the Church and to prevent from becoming a dependency of Spain. Whether or not it be true that the first of the religious wars of France, 1562-63, to preserved France from becoming a Nuganot country, or at all events after the Convention of Amboise, March 1563, such a result was no longer possible. Pius IV's angry schemes of revanche were dropped at the instance of the French crown, nor is there any evidence to show that at the Conference of Bayonne, June 1565, a plan was concocted for the complete recovery of France for Catholicism with the aid of Spain and Rome. But the extirpation of Protestantism throughout the monarchy was certainly counseled there, and before long auxiliaries were sent by Alba from the Netherlands, and a large subsidy was promised by Philip, if Charles IX would continue the war, January 1568. Thus the struggle against the Huguenots, soon assumed a complexion in harmony with the conceptions of Philip of Spain and with the Counter-Reformation movement. A league for the extirpation of heresy was established at Toulouse under the name of a crusade, September 1568, and the fanaticism of the Catholic preachers was revived on no less primitive a type. The victory of Jarnac and the death of Condé, 13th of March 1569, elicited from the delighted Pius V admonitions to Charles IX to tear up not only the roots of the evil, but the very fibers of the roots. But the cool selfishness of Catherine de' Medici and her sons contributed almost as much as the heroic pertinacity of the Huguenots to avert such a doom from France. The Peace of Saint-Germain, 1570, was sincerely meant by Charles IX, the policy of whose government was at this time so far removed from subservience to Spain as to be in direct contact with Elizabeth of England and with William of Orange and with Coligny himself. The friends of the Catholic reaction felt that so dangerous a tendency must be arrested, and the proposed marriage between the sister of the king 
and the young Huguenot king of Navarre was as odious to Pope Pius V as it was to the bigoted populace of Paris. Yet the immediate responsibility of the massacre of St. Bartholomew, 24th of August, 1572, cannot be shifted from the shoulders where it rests. The origin of the crime has to be sought not in the fanaticism of the Guises, but in Catherine de' Medici's jealousy of Coligny's influence over the king and in the momentary impulse which stirred up Charles to act for himself. The fire once lit found inflammatory matter in abundance in the bigoted capital and in other parts of the country. The news of the massacre received with joy and thanksgiving by Philip II and the new Pope Gregory XIII could not fail to intensify with unprecedented force the bitterness of the religious conflict in France and in Europe generally. But the religious policy of the French government continued wavering, and during the remainder of the reign of Charles IX, by no means identified itself with the aims of the reaction. On the accession of Henry III in 1574, there was much uncertainty as to what influence would establish itself over this shallow and unstable mind, whether that of the tolerant Maximilian II and the Doge Mocenigo, or that of Pope Gregory and the Cardinal of Lorraine, now near his end, December 1574. At first he seemed prepared to use force against the Huguenots, and Jesuit and other influences induced him to set on foot a kind of counter-reformation on his own account, during which the flagellants were violently brought into fashion. But this, of course, could not last, and in the so-called Peace of Monsieur, 1576, terms were granted to the Huguenots that caused a loud outcry at Paris and elsewhere, to which the Guises were no strangers. Thus arose the Holy League, 1576, which had been preceded by analogous associations, but soon with the aid both of the Jesuits and in more popular spheres of the Franciscans, absorbed in itself all the minor confederacies. Whether or not the League from the very first pursued the design of supplanting the king by Henry, Duke of Guise, its origin was certainly native, though the name of Philip of Spain was before long associated with its operations. The changes in the attitude of the wretched Henry III toward the League and toward the Huguenot which ensued showed him writhing under an unbearable incubus. The death of his even more contemptible brother Anjou in 1581, shortly after in the Peace of Flesh, favorable terms had been granted to the Huguenot, gave to the Protestant Henry of Navarre the next hereditary claim to the throne, and at the same time seemed to call upon the League and its supporters to accomplish both their avowed and their secret objects. Thus the understanding, agreement, plot, was matured to which the chiefs of the League, the Guises in particular and Philip of Spain, were parties. In 1584 they, together with Charles Emmanuel of Savoy, entered into a compact amounting to a scheme for subduing France in part by foreign arms. Only a year earlier Pope Gregory's demand for the introduction into France of the whole of the Tridentine decrees had been accompanied by a large influx of Jesuits, and an organization of the League had been established at Paris, which, in complete understanding with the Guises, evoked the spirit of the Commune to aid in the destruction of the national monarchy. 
Henry III now entreated Henry of Navarre to abjure the profession of the Protestant faith, which barred his succession to the throne. For in the Treaty of Joinville, January 1585, Spain, the Guises, and the Cardinal of Bourbon united in support of the Cardinal's candidature for the now vacant throne, and of the exclusion of all heretic princes, while the aid of Spain was promised to the League. Sixtus V, surrounded by his spaniolizing cardinals, at first continued to aim at a reconciliation between the Catholic League and Henry III, and was even induced to publish a depriving bull against Navarre and Condé, September 1585. But he had been gradually cooling toward the League, which so openly menaced the independence of the French monarchy, when the assassination by the king's orders of the Guises changed the aspect of affairs, September 1588. The Pope could not avoid calling the unhappy king to account at least for the murder of the cardinal, but the assassination of Henry III himself in August 1589 once more introduced a change in the situation. For a time it seemed necessary to go hand in hand with Spain in opposing the accession of Henry of Navarre. The Catholic faith, said Sixtus, is even nearer to our heart than France. But Henry had resolved upon his course, and the assurances of his agent, Luxembourg, found a ready listener in the Pope. During the lifetime of the Cardinal of Bourbon, whom the Leaguers recognized as King Charles X, the policy of Sixtus was accordingly one of postponement. On the Cardinal's death, May 1590, no escape remained from one of two alternatives, Henry IV, or some vassal pure and simple of Spain. It was then that Philip II proposed to the Pope a definitive treaty of alliance, of which the latter delayed the signature till his hand was cold in death. Before Sixtus V passed away on the 27th of August, 1590, it had become clear that he would be no party to the Spanish bargain. So far as in her lay, Rome had saved France from Spain. End of section 14